The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Our scripture reading today is from Exodus 20, verse 14, and from Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4. You shall not commit adultery. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Well, welcome everybody. That includes the many people on the breezeway and also those who uh, uh, have seen fit to uh, retreat back home because of special vulnerabilities during this time. We regard all of you uh, as being with us and, and uh, it's uh, a privilege in whatever fashion and whatever way to be gathered together to worship Christ and also to continue uh, in our series on the Ten Commandments. Uh, today we are at commandment number seven, uh, you shall not commit adultery, and the title of the sermon today is uh, Honor Every Marriage Bed. That includes your own, that includes the marriage bed of others. So I'll start with um, a few Valentine's card notes from uh, what was called uh, uh, Puritan Valentine's cards from a website that I visited. So Puritan Valentine cards, four of them. Card number one, roses are red, violets are blue, and neither is useful or necessary at all. <laughs> Card number two, I need you to help raise livestock and crops or surely we will starve to death come winter. <laughs> Card number three, you almost make my heart dance and dancing is forbidden. Then card number four, being with you fills me with impure thoughts and I am ashamed. So if you go to the dictionary and you look up the word puritanical, uh, it defines puritanical this way, very strict in moral or religious matters, often excessively so, rigidly austere. So here's a fun fact. In the 1950s, a professor at Yale University in New Haven, Connecticut, uh, did research on what the Puritans taught about marriage and sexuality. And based on his research, he wrote uh, a research paper that he submitted to the Yale Review. And the Yale Review denied publication of this paper. And you would think it was because the Puritans were so excessively uh, rigid and austere and so excessively regressive uh, in their view on things and so, and, and so excessively conservative that, that there's no way that a progressive university like Yale would publish their thoughts, the Puritans' thoughts on Sexuality, And in fact, the opposite was true. The reason why the Yale Review denied publication of the essay was that it was too liberal. The Puritan view of marriage and sexuality was in no way pornographic, but also unashamedly erotic, just like 
the Bible's teaching on these things. So today's verse is a very short verse from the book of Hebrews, and I'm going I'm to cherry pick three words from that verse, try to unpack those three words, and then a, a fourth word uh, to, to follow. So the four words are marriage, bed, judgment, and fulfillment. So we'll just go through those one by one. Marriage, first of all. Let marriage, it says, be held in honor among all. So important to note that the writer of Hebrews has an audience that includes single men and women in the early church and also married men and women in the early church. And the message is clear throughout the Bible that God created the gift of marriage and he also created the gift of erotic love within marriage. And, and he also clearly defined all of the above as follows. One man, one woman in a lifetime exclusive covenant with each other. All the way back to Genesis, all the way back to creation, where it said of Adam and Eve, the man, uh, well, actually of future generations, because Adam didn't leave father and mother, he was actually created out of the dust, but the man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, the two of them will become one flesh. They were naked and they were unashamed. So the marital union is both pictured and also taught as a union that is physical, but also spiritual, emotional, relational, public, legal, permanent. So, according to the Bible, marriage is for a man and a woman and sex is for marriage only. And that feels a bit limiting perhaps, uh, but within those limitations there are also certain freedoms that I'll, I'll get to in a second. But uh, does the Bible teach these things? And, and the, the answer is yes, the Bible teaches these things. They're actually bookends. History begins in the early chapters of Genesis, the first book of the Bible, with a marriage between Adam a man and, and Eve a woman, and the two come together and have children, Cain and Abel, in Genesis chapter 4, and so on. And then the last chapters of the last book of the Bible, Revelation, talk about how at the end of time, out of heaven will, will come what is spoken of as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband, a she and a he, uh, speaking of Christ and the church, the ultimate fulfillment of this gift of marriage. And then in between that, you've got the Old Testament affirming this teaching. You've got the Song of Solomon, which pictures uh, intimacy within marriage, especially erotic intimacy between uh, husband and wife. Then you've got the book of Hosea, where, where the wife, Gomer, goes astray and uh, is unfaithful to the marriage. And, and Hosea is, is called upon by God to pursue his unfaithful wife, to, to, uh, to bring her back in, home and to, to reunite with her in marriage. And, and, and Gomer is, is called to renounce her unfaithfulness and, and, and come back together with her husband, Hosea. And this whole exchange, this whole reality between Hosea and Gomer is meant to be a picture of how God, the faithful one who is always faithful, pursues his unfaithful people. But then there's the New Testament, Ephesians chapter 5, where Paul, a single man, 
who never had a wife, who never had biological children of his own, but who had many spiritual children, uh, who is the foremost teacher on marriage, second only to Jesus. As a single man, the Apostle Paul writes about how husbands and wives are are given to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Uh, The wife is to respect her husband. The husband is to love his wife as Christ loved the church and so on. And then in Matthew 19, Jesus solidifies the creation narrative. In the beginning, Jesus says, quoting Genesis, God made them male and female. And, And the husband and wife leave their parents, unite to one another, become one flesh, and so on. So unequivocally so, this is the biblical teaching. This applies to all times, all seasons, all cultures, all seasons of history. And I realize maybe that's not popular with everybody, but it is what the scriptures teach, that God designed all of this and God defined all of it as such. So, so that's marriage from the scripture's perspective. But then the second word is bed, which communicates some of the freedoms that, that God uh, provides within the boundaries and safeguards and guardrails of the marriage covenant. It says again in Hebrews, let the marriage bed be undefiled. Now, just about anywhere you see the word bed in the Bible, it is metaphor for, uh, for intercourse between a husband and a wife. God created, again, marriage for one man and one woman, and he created uh, marital intimacy for marriage. And so he says, let not the marriage bed be defiled. And so biblically, there are three ways that the marriage bed can be defiled. One is adultery, which is the teaching of the seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery. This is when one or both parties openly or secretly welcome third parties into the marriage bed. Marriage is meant to be exclusive in this way. So that's adultery. It's pretty, pretty, pretty clear, pretty, pretty plain. The second would be um, a marriage bed being defiled through what you could call partial nakedness. That is physical, but, but, but all other forms of nakedness, all other forms of vulnerability and transparency and intimacy are withheld, which makes physical intimacy actually feel a bit violating, a, a bit dishonest and, and, and injurious to the spirit between a husband and a wife, because marriage is meant to be a union of, of their whole selves, where both parties can be known and loved, where both parties can be exposed and not rejected, where both parties can be completely naked in every way and not ashamed and where it is a safe context for all of the above. So another way to put it is that that all of life between a husband and a wife is meant to function as a form of foreplay, you could say, where through through an all day, all week, all month, you know, mutual submission, uh, regular cycles of repentance, for the, the ways that we hurt each other, and regular cycles of forgiving one another when we've been hurt, regular cycles of serving one another, of, of expressing love and affection toward one another in various ways, regular cycles of honoring one another, regular cycles of, of demonstrating respect to one another, that sets the tone, that sets the climate, that sets the environment for the physical intimacy, which serves as, as kind of 
you know, the, the dessert does for a whole meal that has taken place before it. But if you isolate dessert away from the rest of the meal, it, it's, it's sugary and, and, and it, it doesn't do what it's supposed to do. If you, try to, if you try to fill the entire person or couple's need for intimacy with this one thing and, and no other forms of intimacy or, or nakedness, so to speak, it, it actually has a negative effect instead of a positive effect. And so, so that's number two. The third way that the marriage bed can be defiled is through what you could call able-bodied abstinence. Able-bodied abstinence where one or both able-bodied parties. Now there are certain instances where, where a husband and or a wife have, have become uh, uh, disabled from being able to engage physically uh, because of aging, because of other factors, but, but we're talking about able-bodied husbands and wives here. 1 Corinthians 7 says, Husbands and wives, don't deprive each other of the marriage bed. Abstain very uh, infrequently, except for seasons of prayer that you both agree on. And then he goes on to say the wife's body belongs to her husband, and the husband's body belongs to his wife. You know, Proverbs chapter 5 this is a word to husbands. It also goes both ways, but, 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 but it says, Rejoice in the wife of your youth. Let her breasts satisfy you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated with her love. This is why the Puritans were non-pornographic, but, but also very erotic in their teaching on these things. They were, they were decidedly biblical people. This is from the scripture. Song of Solomon, you've got eight full chapters of, of bed, bedroom language and poetry interplay between a husband and a wife. And so St. Augustine, who, you know, we get a lot of our, you know, sort of belief system, a lot of our theology and our, our, our specific, um, you know, theological heritage from Augustine. And one thing about Augustine was, if you read his confessions, you'll, you'll discover he was very promiscuous before he became a follower of Christ. And after he became a follower of Christ, he developed this thought and, and idea that that intercourse is lawful inside of marriage for the purposes of procreation, but to enjoy it would be sinful, Augustine said. Now, far be it from me to say that Augustine missed what the Bible says about something, but Augustine missed what the Bible says about this. In this instance right here, there, it seems to be maybe a reactionary pendulum swing to the guilt and shame that he felt from his previous life of promiscuity that, that, that swung the pendulum too far instead of swinging the pendulum right in the center of where God wants husband and wives to be on this thing, these things. So marriage, bed, third word, judgment. It's a word that none of us likes, but, it, but this is what it says. Let the marriage bed be undefiled. God will judge sexual immorality and adultery. Now, these two words, immorality and adultery, let's unpack those first of all. Immorality is from the word porneia. We get our word pornography from the same root. Porneia, biblically speaking, is any erotic behavior or fantasy outside of the guardrails of marriage itself between a husband and a wife. And so the second word, adultery, is the Greek word moikos, which which is any emotional or physical betrayal 
of your or somebody else's marriage covenant. And so where it says here that God will judge immorality and adultery, let's just rewind to a few sermons ago and remember that the judgment of God is actually very passive. God can actually be fast asleep and judgment happens. And judgment happens not because God is becoming suddenly actively aggressive towards somebody who has disobeyed this or that command, but judgment happens when we decide that we know what is healthier and better and more life-giving than God does, and we, we become laws unto ourselves and decide to go in a different direction than what our designer has established for us and our maker has established for us. God's judgment is simply God allowing our disobedience to run its course. Romans chapter 1, there's very vivid teaching about immorality and adultery and their consequences. And and what it says in Romans 1 is that both immorality and adultery, and you can say this about any decision to go against the law of God, immorality and adultery are both described in Romans 1 as unnatural, as not according to nature. So a little story from my childhood. I did something that was against nature. Uh, I was an avid follower and fan of Superman. And, you know, every time I saw Superman, you know, putting his arms forward and, and that cape starting to wave behind him, and then he would fly wherever he wanted really fast, you know, able to leap tall buildings in a single bound faster than a speeding bullet. I wanted to be those things as well. And so, so one day I decided to get a beach towel and a safety pin, and I, I, I pinned the towel around my neck so that I had a, the towel was functioning as a cape. And I, I, I went on to our front porch, which was, which was about, you know, four or five feet off the ground, and I launched myself. I, I, I was about 17 years old. Just kidding. I was younger than 17. <clears throat> I was a lot younger than 17. But I, that was the first time I ever broke my arm because it was against my nature. It is not according to human nature to fly. God has made me with arms and legs and hands and feet, but not with wings. And so it's just as unnatural for a human being to try to fly as it is for a fish to try to thrive outside of water. It's not going to happen in the same way that no human being is going to thrive outside of the protective life-giving guardrails of the law of God, including these laws right here. So Philip Ryken calls um, erotic intimacy in marriage uh, like the superglue. He says it's like the superglue of a marriage covenant. So you've got all of this stuff going on inside the marriage covenant. You've got You've got spiritual and emotional uh, sharing with one another. You've got a legal union uh, that you have made through through vows with one another that that, that binds you in commitment together for better, for worse, sickness and health, richer for poorer, joy and sorrow, as long as you both shall live. Like you've got all of this. And, And then you've got the physical union that's part of that as well. He says, as soon as you take the physical union and isolate it from and separate it from the the rest of the covenant 
And, and you take it outside and you turn it into something recreational, you turn it into something non-committal, you, tur you turn it into you know, a hookup habit, you turn it into a, a pornography habit, you, heard it, you turn it into anything other than what it was t intended to do, eventually you know, you're still taking super glue and you're gluing that part of you to somebody else's soul, not just to their body, but to somebody else's soul, but, but without the soul level commitment, you're going to separate, and then you're going to go do your thing, and, and he or she's going to go do their thing, uh, because you don't have the rest of the covenant undergirding this, and, and what you do when you pull two things that have been super glued together in any, any fashion apart from one another, it, it rips some stuff, and this part takes some of this part away with it, and this part takes some of this part away from it, and, 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 and it, it, it tears at the fabric of the soul. Because superglue is meant to make things stick. It's not meant to pull things apart. And so, inside of marriage, marital intimacy, the intimacy of the marriage bed, solidifies and strengthens everything else in addition to the physical. It solidifies and strengthens the spiritual connection, the emotional connection, uh, all of it. Outside of marriage, it separates apart from the whole, and when we do this, it rips the fabric of the soul. Inside of marriage, sex is a powerful force for good. Outside of marriage, it's a powerful force for harm. Many of us have discovered this over the course of our years in one way or another. Perhaps this is why Jesus, he didn't command divorce, but he allowed it in the cases of porneia, specifically, Matthew chapter 19, porneia being introduced into the marriage bed. So that brings us lastly to fulfillment. This is important to say when we're dealing with the commands, when we're dealing with you shall nots, right? We, we, we think of sort of this austere, um, you know, Pollyanna-like, you know, preacher wagging a pointing finger at us, you shall not, you shall not, you shall not. Every time the Bible says you shall not, there is a you shall and you can and you may on the other end of it. Every time the Bible says God will judge on the other end of it, there's also a God will prosper. God will judge if, God will prosper you if, and then he fills in the blank with that which is unhealthy and not according to, to his design over here. And, and, and over here he fills in the blank with that, that which is healthy and according to his design. It says in the first Psalm, blessed or happy are those who delight in the law of the Lord. That person is like a tree that's planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season. Whatever that person does prospers. So my last words here, going into the Lord's Supper, I want to talk about the two fundamental uses of the bed. And I know kids, you jump on the bed, so that's a third use. Uh, if, if you're a kid and listening to kid, kids also, I apologize for preaching this kind of message while you're sitting next to your mom and dad. I know it's awkward. Um, hopefully they'll give you an extra donut uh, for sitting through it uh, after the service. But here's what the bed does. The bed provides a place of rest for all. And it provides a place of intimacy for some. A place of rest for all. So here's the spiritual application. There, there's a rest that goes deeper than physical in the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's a rest that God gives us from the burden of our own failure to abide by these things. 
It's a rest that tells us that when we have been unfaithful, God has stayed faithful. When we have walked away from God, he has stayed true to us. That he will never divorce us. That he will never leave us. He will never forsake us. Even when we become as Gomer, he will become as Hosea and chase after us. He will not forsake us for past mistakes that we regret, for even things that are going on right now. He will not forsake us, which actually becomes our motivation for being faithful to him moving forward. A place of rest. Rest from our failure. Classic picture of this in the Bible is King David. In his his lowest point in life, he sees his neighbor's wife, his good friend Uriah's wife, Bathsheba, bathing on their roof. And it says that as king, he exercised his power by telling his servants to go and take her. It says he saw her, he sent for her, and he took her. This is the language of assault. This is the language of non-consensual intimacy. That's what, that's what the, the biblical text seems to point to. And of course, he gets called out for it. He gets prophetically confronted by his friend Nathan, who who risked his own life by speaking speaking truth to power and said, you're the man, you've done this unfaithful thing. And and then we get the 51st Psalm, which we use part of it for our confession today, which is just a, a wonderful resource for anyone who feels guilty, filled with regret, filled with shame. The 51st Psalm is actually David's prayer of confession for immorality, for porneia and moikos, for defiling two marriage beds, his own and his neighbor's. And then we fast forward and we see the genealogy or the lineage of Jesus Christ himself listed in the first chapter of Matthew's gospel. And in there it says that David had a son named Solomon by the wife of Uriah. That is not meant to be a statement of shame, but a statement of how enormous the grace of God is, because that story unfolded as well. Here's the grace that happened to David. God forgave him, but as if that wasn't enough, and it was enough, it appears that Bathsheba did as well. You saw me, you sent for me, you took me, you got me pregnant, you you killed my husband in order to cover yourself but what does the rest of the story tell us? At some point, God had, had, had done a work in Bathsheba's heart so deep that, that it appears that she would forgive him and, 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 and she married him. She married the mistress. The against her own will mistress married the man. Later on, and it said that, that, that David knew her. He knew her, as they say, as the Puritans say, in the biblical sense and gave birth to a son. And instead of telling David to name his son, God said, I'm going to name your son. And and, and I'm gonna give him two names, and both of these names, it's as if these are my words spoken over you. Name him Jedidiah, which means beloved of God. Name him Solomon, which means peace. This is God's response to our 
infidelities. When we come to him, as David did in Psalm 51, and say, say, have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions, wash away my iniquity, cleanse me from my sin, let there be joy and gladness, let the bones you have crushed rejoice, let the misery that I brought on myself be healed. And the words that God gives in response are, beloved of God, peace. The bed is a place of rest, pointing to the rest of God. There are others in the genealogy. Abraham was a horrible husband, mistreated his wife in a horrible way, made her vulnerable in a horrible way. Tamar, also listed in the lineage of Christ, an assault victim, a sexual assault victim, Tamar was. Rahab, also listed in the lineage of Christ, who had been a prostitute. That's how big the grace of God is. When we are faithless, when we are unfaithful, when we are Gomer, he is as Hosea, except more so. Then finally, the bed is a place of intimacy. The most memorable night of marital bliss is like a drop in the ocean of God's love. You know, I'm, I'm a bachelor this week because my wife is up in St. Louis taking care of, you know, some of the needs that her parents have. And so, so I'm just, you know, kind of cooking on my own some nights, and I, I grilled some salmon the other night. I really like salmon, and our dog Lulu really likes salmon as well. So I took a piece of that salmon, dropped it on the floor. She, she didn't even see it. And so I pointed at the salmon and she's looking at me all, you know, dumb. And I said, no, right there. And, and when, I, when, when I get my hand low enough, instead of looking toward the salmon that my finger's pointing to, she starts sniffing my finger. And that's exactly what we do when we fixate on a gift such as this and turn it into some kind of ultimate thing that it never was meant to be, like an identity. My identity is not in my sexual status, my marital status, or any other status. My identity is in my redemptive status, that I am my beloved, and my beloved is mine, that I belong, body and soul, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, as the Heidelberg Catechism reminds us. We need to be careful not to stop at the pointer, but to look beyond the pointer to where the pointer is pointing to the one who is himself the point, Jesus Christ. You know, when Patty and I go to a restaurant, we rarely get an appetizer because we don't want the appetizer to spoil our appetite. Unless we go to dinner with Daniel Fisher and then we get every appetizer on the, on the menu, right? So, but even when we get appetizers, we know just, just eat a little bit. Just eat just enough to, to whet your appetite for what's really coming. And that's what this gift of marital intimacy is given for, not to be the point. One of these days, our bodies are all going to grow tired and old, incontinent and impotent with respect to these things. But, But hopefully over time, the use of our bodies will have stirred and strengthened that which cannot be taken away. And that is the stuff that happens in the soul and in the heart and and the stuff that is eternal. Here's what Scripture says about stuff that's eternal from no less than David, King David himself, Bathsheba's husband. 
Psalm 1611, you, God, make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. The pleasure center of the universe is at the right hand of God. And guess who sits there right now at the right hand of God? The resurrected, ascended, and, and seated Jesus Christ who always lives to intercede for his people, who always lives to chase after Gomer. The unfaithful people that we are, our, our, our faithful Savior continues to chase after us so that we can know and experience and re-enter those pleasures that are ours forevermore in Christ. By the mercies of God, through faith we have been superglued to the bridegroom. And so let's be sure not to get stuck on sniffing a pointing finger. But let's look to where that finger points and that is to the feast himself, to whom we come now in the Lord's Supper. But before that, let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that when we are unfaithful, when we are faithless, you remain faithful. You cannot be anything but faithful because you cannot disown yourself. And so, Father, we come to you in humility. We come to you in gratitude. We come to you, Lord, with great deep desire to experience what is there at the universe's pleasure center. Pleasures forevermore at the right hand of God where Christ is seated. The bridegroom awaiting final and ultimate union with his bride in the new heaven and the new, and the new earth. And so, by the mercies of God, would you use this this meal in front of us, which, which is in many ways also a pointer, a tiny piece of bread, a tiny sip of the cup, uh, which remind us of, of this feast, this marriage feast of the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world that the book of Revelation talks about. Give us a foretaste even now uh, as we look ahead to those eternal pleasures that you have for all of your people. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.